Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to this Wednesday edition of Political Rewind. I'm Greg Bluestein, reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, filling in for the great Bill Nygut. There's a lot of news coming out of Georgia, the country, and the world. But of course, everyone's eyes are on Plains, Georgia, where I spent the last four days as President Jimmy Carter entered hospice care this weekend. So before we introduce our guests, I just want to riff a little bit on the people of Plains, a town of hardly 500 people whose most famous export is the former president. I just got back from Plains. I'm bound to return soon. And to the people there, Jimmy Carter is more than a former president. He's a neighbor. He's a friend. He's who they call Mr. Jimmy. They see him at the ice cream parlor getting peanut butter soft serve, at the local diner grabbing chicken and dumplings. He presides over the annual peanut parade. He sits on local community boards, taught Sunday school at the church. They used to see him jogging down the main drag, splashing in the public pool, catching a show at a historic theater a few miles down the road. He could have lived anywhere he wanted after he left the White House, but he chose planes. I once asked him why he decided to return home. He responded that I answered the question for him because it was home. Okay, we're here to unpack it all, starting with a conversation on the Georgia Democrat and 39th president. Tia Mitchell, my colleague at the AJC and our Washington correspondent, joins me right now. Tia, you've had the chance to meet the president during your first trip to Plains. What was that like? Oh, my God. It was amazing. So I went to Plains right as the we were starting to reopen after the pandemic, March 2021. And I didn't know if the president and first lady Rosalind were even going to be at church, but I knew Maranatha, their church was such an important part of their story and such a, you know, important part of their connection to playing. So I went on a Sunday morning, sat in the back with other visitors and Rosalind Carter came to the back to greet visitors. And when I told her I was a reporter for the AJC, she said, oh, you need to meet Jimmy. And she said, get up. And she walked me to the front of the church. Um, the Secret Service men, I was looking at them like, am I to do this? And I think they're used to like, we do what Miss Rosalind tells us to do. And so she walked me to the front row where President Carter was sitting. And she said, Jimmy, this is um, the lady from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And he stuck out his hand to shake my hand. And again, I looked at the Secret Service people like, I don't think I'm supposed to touch him. Is this him. allowed? And is this allowed? But they, you know, again, I think they were like, go ahead. So I shook his hand and then he politely was like, now go back to your seat. It's time for Sunday school. And I said, yes, sir. And you got but to catch that one of was his last really lessons. Cool. Well, he was, he wasn't at this point, they were no longer teaching. They were just there to attend, but it was clear that, you know, for him, that was the priority, not chatting with the lady at AJC. It was time to start Sunday school. Indeed. Uh, we also have Engaged Futures CEO Leo Smith on. Leo, you've been working with the Carter Center for years now. Yeah, it's been really amazing for me, someone who sort of grew up 
as a lifeguard and a person paying my mom's mortgage rent. Um, so I was inspired by conservatism and Ronald Reagan, but then there was Carter, you know, and, and here I am now years later being inspired by Carter's morality. Um, the fact that he has a faith forward type of presence all over the world and that that faith has led me to even partner as a Republican with the Carter Center um, to, to ensure that we have a peaceful democracy. I mean, he rang the alarm bell in the New York Times that we are, you know, that he feared that we were on, you know, on the edge of a civil war again. And, and his, the way that he imbued a moral philosophy to his leadership that went from home to solar panels on the White House. Um, it's, it's just amazing that we sort of, sort of lack that in politics these days. And he's transcendent in that way. I don't think of him as a Democrat. I think of him as a, a president who is becoming mortal by what he did after his presidency. And I think his presidency, we've, we've talked a lot about his post-presidency, but I think his presidency is going to be reassessed, too. We also have former state senator Jen Jordan, also the Democratic nominee for attorney general last year. Uh, senator Jordan, you're a Dodge County native. But you've also got a family connection to the Carters. And I think you're a mute, Senator. I don't think that I have a... Um a memory of a time when, you know, President Carter wasn't kind of somewhere, right? Just whether we're talking about politically um, or just in the state or even from the family level. My um, husband um, was Hamilton Jordan's nephew and Hamilton ran um, President Carter's early campaigns and then was his chief of staff. And so that those those stories and kind of what they were able to achieve. And I think you're right, Greg, that in terms of his presidency now, it seemed like it wasn't successful. But if we look back at a lot of the policies that they were pushing really hard on, that they were not successful in terms of getting over the line, that if, in fact, some of those policies had made it, we would be in a very different situation. Um, but I think he's going to be remembered most as a man of faith and someone who lived his faith, um, loved his family, loved this country, and I think um, was a true moral leader, which, um, you know, we are sorely lacking right now, um, you know, all over this country, unfortunately. I know, stay on that topic as we introduce Axios Atlanta's Emma Hurt. Emma, you know, if you're a fellow journalist. You've been keeping an eye on developments with the Carters. Look, what, what Senator Jordan said really hit home, too, because a man of faith, someone who faithfully taught Sunday school lessons at Maranatha for years, joined the church right after, um, shortly after it started, right after he left the presidency, moved back to Plains. But that was a part and parcel of who he was. Absolutely. And it, and it runs consistently. I mean, I was I've been listening back to interviews about, you know, on the 75th wedding anniversary that he and Rosalind celebrated just recently, which, by the way, is absolutely insane um, and incredible. But they said they read the Bible together every night and that that was a key to the secret of their marriage um, in a way. And, and I did get to go to Sunday school a couple times um, and it was a really remarkable phenomenon to participate in for those of us who especially went towards the end when it became such a bucket list item where you it was like a game it was like a strategic game where you have to show up in planes first of all the hotels are probably booked because there are tons of people there and the game is get there early enough to guarantee yourself a spot inside the church 
And that meant that people would show up at this church at like midnight the night before and then sleep in your car. Because as soon as you entered church grounds, you get a number that reserves your place in line. And then you have to stay on premises. That was the rule. But I think about um, when I think about that, I think about all the people, the members of the church who would volunteer their time and show up and sit there with all of these random visitors from around the world and, and how the Carters, by choosing to come back to Plains as well, have kind of, in a way, saved a town that very well might have fallen off the map, as we've sadly seen so many really small towns in Georgia um, and across rural America. And, and they're, you know, someone told me, like, there's a reason why he wants to be buried in Plains. It's his home, but it's also like a very, it's an economic development decision that he and Rosalind made together that's very strategic. And um, with the goal of, of keeping a place that they love um, on on the map, on the tourist map, in some way. That's such an important point, um, Atia. You know, their relationship stretches back to when Rosalind was an infant. You know, she was just a few months old when Jimmy Carter, who was four, uh, he actually lived in the small. An unincorporated area of archery, which was a couple miles down the road from Plains. And, and to him, Plains was the center of life, economic activity, religion. And, you know, we can go to Plains now and it's just a handful of stores and homes, you know, just a few hundred people. But to him, this was the big city. It was, it was you know, just down the road. He used to hawk peanuts um, and walk along the railroad tracks for three miles just to sell you know, some, some boiled peanuts to folks. But their relationship stretches back all these years and they both are deeply committed to ensuring that Plains survives uh, w- w- even after they're gone. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why I decided to even make my trip to Plains is because being the Washington correspondent for the AJC Congress a couple of years ago started talking about what resources Plains might need as we prepare for it to become this tourist destination, particularly after not just once President Carter passes away whenever that is. And also after Rosalind passes away, even the home where they live right now will become a national landmark. In addition to his boyhood home, that's already a landmark, the uh, Plains High School, that's already a landmark. So Congress has been talking about, you know, making it a national historic park and the type of resources that come with that, what to preserve, how to preserve it. And it is, it's one of those things that I think Plains is out there. You know, it's a lot of times when you think of tourist destinations, they're, they're, they might be a little bit off the beaten path, but not far. This one is kind of way off the beaten path. You got to be deliberate about going to Plains. Um, there aren't even hotels in Plains. You got to stay, what, 30 or 40, 30 minutes away in Americas. Um, um, so anyways, there's, there's been a lot of conversation about what that looks like and what the draw may be, again, once either President Carter or Miss Rosalind passes away. Um, but that's a testament to their legacy in their life. Again, not just as a former president. I think what is so remarkable about President Carter is his post-presidency, which, as we know, extended farther than any other person to be president. And he did so much with his time. Yeah, Senator, I mean, some of the things he did with that post-presidency, and we've talked some about his legacy as president, but post-president, starting the Carter Center, I mean, he was in a deep depression after he lost to Ronald Reagan, woke up one night and told Rosalind, I want to help, I want to do something to help solve disputes. And out of that basically bore 
what is today the Carter Center, which promotes civil rights, human rights, monitors elections, and very importantly also fights curable, preventable diseases like schistosomiasis, like uh, guinea worm, uh, like all these horrible diseases that they've, they've fought so hard to eradicate. Um, Senator, as, as you worked in public life, you interacted with Carter Center, you know, constantly, it seems like. Yeah, especially in the recent years when we've had so much turmoil over elections um, and kind of election deniers and procedures and all of those things. I mean, that's what when it became really disturbing to me is when the Carter Center really wanted to send folks to observe elections in the state of Georgia, um, because then we knew we were at a different level. It wasn't just, you know, the media or social media anymore. I mean, it was it was very serious when the Carter Center wants to wants to step in and just make sure that that we in the United States have free and fair elections. And Leo, that work is still ongoing. We should plug your your latest venture. In our Democracy Resilience Network, um, really, we think it had a profound inf- uh, influence campaign that made a difference in getting some people to go to principalcandidates.org, the website we set up as part of the work that we've done cross-partisan, um, and, and sort of create a, a higher talos for candidate behavior. Um, Governor Kemp signed on to it. Stacey Abrams kind of signed on to it. And we like to think that that had some influence in, on them uh, saying, yes, we should concede in a, in a professional, magnanimous way. And that work continues because we know we're not beyond political balance right now. And the Carter Center is committed to that. I mean, and just like they, you know, they oversaw 113 elections uh, internationally. Um, they mediated, you know, violence at the Gaza and Syria. I mean, they've done a tremendous amount of work. And now here we are, President Carter leading the way, saying America is in turmoil and we need to now bring the work that we've done internationally home. But we need to make sure that it includes all people and has an inclusive model. And we continue to do that work. And and I just continue to be amazed by how it impacts the daily life of the Carter Center in Atlanta. We're talking a lot about planes, Mm -hmm. but I think it would behoove any American and any Iranian hostage who who was impacted by his work to visit the Carter Center, to see the collections that they had there, to see his office, and to see how hands-on Rosalind Carter and President Carter were at that center. I feel it all the time, even in our meetings. Tia? Yeah, and I just want to bring up the guinea worm because to me, that's so telling. I went to the Carter Center to meet with them and they were telling me about the guinea worm program. And that's we don't even know about the guinea worm in America. That's not something we deal with. But and I just want to read this. This is from the Carter Center's website. When they started working on this program, the guinea worm eradication program in 1986, there were three point five million human cases annually in 21 countries in Africa and Asia. Last 2021, 2022, I mean, there were 13, 3.5 million to 13. And the Carter Center has been out front on this issue that was very serious to African and Asian countries countries. But in America, it wasn't a big deal. So they've been doing stuff out of the public eye as far as here in America and, and getting huge payoff. I once asked the former president what he wanted, what his last accomplishment might might be before he dies. He said, I want to eradicate the guinea worm. And he might have done that. You know, we don't know, but oh, no doubt. a dozen or so cases left. So, OK, of course, our thoughts and prayers 
or with the Carters at this time. But I'd like to shift the conversation, but stay in Georgia as we talk about the Fulton County Special Grand Jury, because this was a pretty remarkable development. The forewoman, Emily Kors, sat for interviews with the Associated Press, the AJC, CNN, the New York Times, NBC, and, and other outlets. And she gave us an inside look at this really secretive grand jury process. She revealed that the jury recommended multiple indictments of well-known figures, but didn't say who they were. She had some interesting thoughts on some of the Georgia figures, uh, including Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, who she thought, she thought was geeky and funny. And she said the late House Speaker David Ralston was hilarious. Okay, Senator Jordan, as an attorney, is hearing from a member of the special grand jury before the final report has been released, is this pretty extraordinary or am I just kind of getting over my head on this? We we never even know who these people are. I mean, that's the whole point is it's usually you have no clue who they are. You have no clue kind of what their process was, anything like that. So not only are we going to have a, a full report soon um, and see kind of what they felt, you know, kind of the process they went through and then their conclusions. But now we've got the um, the four person coming out and giving media um, interviews. I'll tell you, I appeared before that grand jury and I remember the, the forewoman and she I think she was one of the youngest people in the room. And it was interesting because she asked me questions about Twitter um, and, you know, how active I was and who wrote my tweets and do uh, do politicians all write their own tweets. It was a very inter interesting interaction with her. Um, so I, I guess I shouldn't have been surprised she was the four person, but she was definitely um, the youngest person in the room that I could tell. Yeah, I've heard from a few of the witnesses who had some interesting observations about her as well. Tia, um, I thought it was interesting that when our AJC colleagues, Tamar Hallerman and, and, um, and, uh, and, and Bill, asked her about Trump's false claim that the sealed report exonerated him, she burst out laughing. Yeah, I, I, I'm surprised about the whole thing. Like, the DA office didn't call her and say, "Hey, sis, wait a minute, wait, hold on, don't do that right now. We're not ready for you to do that." You know, I just, and I, I've seen, you know, some of the kind of legal uh, commentary, if you will, on Twitter that say it doesn't appear that she broke any rules and giving insight into who they spoke to, um, as long as she doesn't go uh, too far into like their deliberations and things like that. But the fact that she is providing insight and is kind of indicating, if not outright saying it, kind of indicating who she thought was, you know, maybe full of it or who she thought maybe was problematic, that could complicate the the cases going forward, it seems like. So I'm just kind of surprised and um, wondering kind of what's motivating this right now, the timing. Emma? I just am struck by, it's, a, it's yet another example of how this grand jury is not like any of the others. It is so, everything about this is so strange and that's why, um, it's taking, you know, reporters have to cover it full time to follow it because we have a special purpose grand jury. It's an investigative grand jury, but they can indict and they're focused on the president. That's remarkable. And so at each turn, it feels like the, the normal kind of rules of what we expect of a grand jury are either like, you know, thrown out the window on purpose or sort of by accident because of all of the scrutiny and the pressure on on all parts of it um and as much as the da has 
has talked about trying to kind of keep this within the realm of, of what we expect and um, maintaining secrecy and integrity and, you know, shutting, slowing things down around the election to avoid political perception. It's just kind of impossible to keep this thing, it seems, uh, within the bounds of what we expect of grand juries. Um, so <laughs> with every turn, I'm no longer really surprised <laughs> anymore about whatever pops up. Leo, Emma brings up such a good point because this special grand jury doesn't have the power to indict. It can recommend that the DA Fonnie Willis bring charges, but it doesn't have the power itself. But it could put the DA in some in a particular bind, right? If if before her decision comes out about what choices she'll make tonight, if we're already hearing that it recommended dozens of charges, you know, not maybe not dozens, but multiple uh, multiple indictments, and if Fonnie Willis decides to just ha- issue a few, you know, push forward with a few indictments, it could put her in a tough spot. Yeah, well, and no matter what she, sorry, go ahead, Leo. No, no, no. I mean, Emma, you go, you go ahead. I was just no, going to so, say, no matter what she decides, if the report comes out and it's not what they recommended, that also throws, you know, well, exactly. Right, and that yeah. So what's happened with this 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 um, juror is that she's sort of like engaged the court of public opinion already, and sort of spoil the grits of that Fanning Willis might be having this morning for breakfast. Um, those, I mean, you know, so I can't imagine that Fanning Willis is happy about this. And if people read into this, you know, this obviously person who's interested in some exposure, um, asking about Twitter, asking about social media, how does it work, that kind of thing. I mean, this is a TikTok generation. And so if people then therefore start to develop an opinion one way or the other, and it doesn't turn out the way they expect, that animates even in some anger and some distrust, et cetera. And I too wish that you know she would have just held 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 the horses on this. Senator. Yeah, I think Leo got it right. I mean, when you have a four person who is a member of the TikTok generation, this is what you're going to get, right? I mean, she's young. This is how they interact. This is how they talk. I mean, it doesn't really surprise me in that sense. And really, the district attorney has no control over the members of the special grand jury. So, yeah, I'm sure um, Madam DA has some um, heartburn. But just in terms of if she doesn't do exactly what the grand jury wants, we could tell from the portions of the grand jury report that weren't redacted that they basically said, at the end of the day, this really is up for the DA, and we're going to leave it to her, and we trust in her judgment and in her discretion. And Jen, I'm not a member of the TikTok generation, but I'm an aging millennial. But before we go to break, does it worry you that she broke any rules that could jeopardize the investigation? I know that the Judge McBurney gave some guidelines about what could be said and what could not be said. You know, I I don't even know what the rules were, right? Like, so I'm not quite sure if she has, and the special grand jury process is just that special and and different. I'll tell you this, it still has to go to another grand jury for indictment. And, And my guess is we won't know who the members of that grand jury are. And we won't know about, we might not even see this final report for weeks or even months to go. Okay, we need to hit our first break here, but stay with us. We'll be right with more Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you. 
delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. And we're back with more Political Rewind. I'm Greg Bluestein, senior political reporter at the AJC, filling in for the great Bill Nygut. Just a quick programming note, the Political Rewind team has planned a special show tomorrow surrounding the high cost of rent and home ownership. And we'll follow a series from the AJC called American Dream for Rent. <coughs> if you have questions about the housing market, you can leave a voicemail at 404-494-0421 <coughs> or reach out to us on PoliticsGPB on Twitter. Okay. Back to our panel today. Axios Atlanta's Emma Hurt, AJC's Tia Mitchell, Engage Futures Leo Smith, and former State Senator Jen Jordan. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene is drawing all sorts of negative attention again, this time for calling for a national divorce. It's rhetoric that brings secession to mind. Tia, I'm going to toss to D.C. to start with you here. What stuck out to you? So, okay, where do we start? Number one, I... Marjorie Taylor Greene called for a national divorce, but she also is like strongly pushing back on the criticism that she's advocating for secession, that she's advocating for civil war. So she's kind of describing it as like, no, I want to still keep the country together. I just want red states and blue states to be separate. So I don't know what we call that, but that's what she's saying. But I mean, even to the point the White House put out a statement yesterday calling it problematic and asked and saying Kevin McCarthy needs to say something. Now, to me, what's been most glaring is the silence from Republican leaders, not just in Washington, but even in Georgia. You know, we had Congress is out this week conveniently. So reporters can't hound Speaker McCarthy and all the other lawmakers in the hallway. Um, but they all have Twitter and they all are using it to criticize President Biden this week or push other things this week. But what they're not using their social media to do this week is to have any type of uh, reaction to Marjorie Taylor Greene's very controversial statements. I mean, at the end of the day, whether you call it secession, civil war, separation, divorce, it is antithetical to the definition of United States of America. And therefore, you know, a lot of people think that given her new platform, it's problematic for her to basically say she wants to tear apart the union. Exactly. And I think I've rid my throat of that frog. Emma, we don't tend to talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene too much on these programs because, look, she routinely makes polarizing remarks that are intended to, to draw outrage. But, Emma, this one seemed to cross a new threshold, at least to me. Yeah. And I think, you know, as we've learned just in the really, I guess it's been two years that Marjorie Taylor Greene has been a congresswoman seems like much longer than that somehow because her influence has continued to grow. And someone who seemed perhaps at the beginning to be um, a, more of a fringe congressperson that whose ideas might not make it into the mainstream or whose influence might not be felt in Washington, um, especially recently, we've learned that's not the case given her support for Speaker McCarthy. And so we have to pay attention to what she's saying because I think Green also has um, one thing she does is 
she she will convey what her base is feeling um, in a way that's not filtered. And um, that's why it shocks so many people in Washington a lot of times, because many politicians are uh, will not do such a thing. Um, they will filter themselves. And um, she doesn't do that. And sometimes it's obviously for her own political reasons. Um, but this is not an emotion or something that she's made up, would be my guess. This is something that she feels from however many people, however small a minority, we don't know. But she is um, certainly not afraid to speak out and, and transmit that emotion on whatever topic it might be. Leo, you're nodding in agreement. Yeah, I would caution to um, not look at what Marjorie Taylor Greene is saying as obscure. Um, I can recall as early as 2012 being involved in conservative pockets here and there, discussions about a uh, convention of states and um, looking at how to give states more independence. And certainly that is part of the normal language of a lot of states these days, both blue and red, um, you know, how, how to avoid being part of the national caste um, that oftentimes happens about various states or America in general. And you've heard people who are liberals in California talk about, you know, seceding. I mean, in, in some ways, you've heard Charles Blow tell people, the New York Times columnists, tell people, move down to Georgia if you're African-American so you can sort of take over the state. Um, you know, these sentiments are part of America's demographic shift and the battle that we're in. She's taking advantage of that. Um, we've had state representatives, people in the state house of Georgia be part of that whole convention of states um, conversation. And she's kind of saying it in a crass way, but it's out there, y'all. Yeah, I mean, Jen, Leo is a Republican <laughs> saying that he's seen this sort of rhetoric for years. You've seen this as well here in Georgia and on the national stage. What's your gut reaction to when you see comments like this? Look, I think the problem is, is that she, because of the place or the role that she's playing with respect to Speaker McCarthy and kind of helping to deliver that for him, um, it is starting to make her a more normalized character. And unfortunately, I think what we're seeing is the Overton window shift, right? And the Overton window is um, what we used to think was unacceptable, radical, off the charts, what you would never say in polite, you know, conversation all of a sudden becomes the norm. And I think that's what we're seeing with um, characters out there like Marjorie Taylor Greene. And I think the problem is nobody is calling it what it really is, which is seditious language. I mean, we can use euphemisms all we want and say, oh, well, it's just a divorce or whatever she wants to say. I didn't really call for civil war. I mean, you know, what that says to me is that she's just trying to gaslight everybody. We know what she's doing. We know what she's saying, and she's communicating it very clearly. And at some point, there has to be some accountability um, for someone who acts that way. And Tia, in the jolt this morning, you wrote that she's basically defending her comments. Yeah, defending, but also, I think, responding in a, not directly, but kind of indirectly responding to the criticism again by saying, I don't mean civil war and, you know, trying to create a definition. And that's something that we know Marjorie Taylor Greene does. One thing that I thought was telling is her initial tweet about national divorce was on a different account than some of the clarifying messages to kind of walk back the more secessionist kind of connotations of that statement. So, 
we know that she tends to speak in different ways to different audiences. What she says, you know, conservative media into a conservative audience might not be the same tone or the same way she shapes messages when she's talking to mainstream media or in her official uh, capacity as a member of Congress. So I think we're seeing some of those dynamics play out as well with this latest controversy. Emma, out in her district, we've heard her say this sort of rhetoric, not maybe going this far, but we've heard this rhetoric before. But we, yeah, as Tia mentioned, we've also heard her focus on constituent services and kind of the more bland, boring stuff. Yeah, and I think the bottom line when it comes to her district is that she has really strong support still. And so even though there was a pretty formidable funded challenge mounted um, in her primary, uh, it didn't really make much of a dent, and and she seems to very much still um, be beloved by the folks voting in the Republican primary in the 14th district. And at the end of the day, they're the ones that send her there. Yeah, Leo, I know there's been a lot of talk among Republican establishment leaders and others saying we need to you know mount another primary challenge against her. But Emma's right. The fact is that she overwhelmingly defeated Republican rivals back in 2020, in 2022. You know, she looks like to be a very, very formidable opponent, and she's raised a boatload of money. Yeah, there have been many, uh, several attempts now to unseat her by other conservatives and Republicans in that district. And as I talk to uh, legislative leaders who are Republicans, I think they have sort of acquiesced to the idea that she may be just the normal um, that is going to come from that district unless some redrawing is done. We know that her district was redrawn slightly, um, but not in a way that would actually give a, a, a rational, reasonable, conservative a real chance. And it really is about voter education. And we really need to get into a process where the primary voter, the voter who selects uh, delegates even to go to the Georgia State Convention this June, that the, the Republicans who are are, are are sort of the bread and butter of America are staying home from the primary process. And the minority is choosing who our general election uh, choices are. And that's something that we as Republicans have to figure out and we as Americans have to figure out. Meanwhile, Senator Jordan, Democrats, both in Georgia and around the nation, are trying to paint Marjorie Taylor Greene as the face of the Republican Party. She's showing up in mailers and TV ads and leaflets and, and campaign speeches uh, you know, uh, tying whoever the Republican candidate for whatever is to Marjorie Taylor Greene. Yeah, I mean, Republicans have done it for years in terms of I remember when I used to get mail with Hillary Clinton on it when she was the first lady. Um, you know, Nancy Pelosi, AOC is a favorite of Republicans, um, you know, for for some reason, it's always women, right? Isn't that interesting that it's always women that are easily demonized, even on the Republican side with with Marjorie Taylor Greene, although I think she she earns it fair and square. Um, yeah, she's a scary she's a scary figure. And she makes people think that Georgia um, is a not welcoming place. Emma. And I'll just say, and we've seen it in the campaign finance numbers from that general election last year, even the AJC did a really great map of where donations were coming from for both Green and for her Democratic opponent, Marcus Flowers, who they both raised, I think, almost the same amount of money, but they both raised it from all over the country because um, she is a figure that animates both sides of the aisle across the country. Tia, I think that was your story, right? Yep. 
aim to please. And look, it's also a reason why Republicans seek out her endorsement or at least seek out uh, attempt to, to not get on her wrong side because they don't want to lose support from that very important GOP-leaning district. Tia, I also want to turn to you on a more somber note. President Biden delivered an address in Poland this week marking the one-year anniversary of Russia's attack on Ukraine. He didn't mince words. He mentioned Putin 10 times. So far, we've seen in Georgia and really throughout the nation, strong bipartisan support for funding the Ukrainian military effort. But there's concerns that, you know, that patience will wear thin. Yeah, that's one of the biggest partisan fights, I think, to come and one of the biggest ramifications of Republicans uh, taking control in the U.S. House is that they really can clog up new money to Ukraine. You know, it goes back to that age old isolationism question that America has faced time and time again. And, um, you know, the Biden administration, it wasn't just President Biden. Earlier in the week, Vice President Harris said Russia had committed crimes against humanity, which is a very powerful statement, indictment of Vladimir Putin. So there's going to be a lot of conversation about how much money to keep paying, especially as the war moves on. Leo, um, do you continue to see, before we go to break, do you continue to see Republican support for funding the U- Ukrainian military aid, or do you think it will wear thin among the GOP? No, I think it is wearing thin amongst the GOP. And of course, they're going to take an oppositional stance and then they're going to throw, throw the whole, look, we're spending all this money on Ukraine and we haven't even secured our own border and that we could be using our military reinforcements for securing our border. So it's always going to be oppositional um, in this environment that we're, that we're in. And there are both libertarian ideology as well as some conservative ideology that, that says that we should be mostly focused on our own national defense and uh, that, you know, our involvement in foreign, foreign wars has been a little too hawkish. Okay, we have to get to our final break. Stick around and we'll be right back with more Political Rewind. And we're back with more Political Rewind. I'm Greg Bluestein, political reporter at the AJC, filling in for the great Bill Nigan. Okay, I'm going to try this again. Just a quick programming note. The Political Rewind team has planned a special show tomorrow surrounding the high cost of rent and home ownership. It will follow a series from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution called American Dream for Rent. If you have questions about the housing market, you can leave a voicemail at 404-494-0421. That's 404-494-0421. Or reach out to us on at politicsgpb on Twitter. Okay, let's jump Right back into our discussion with Leo Smith, Tia Mitchell, Emma Hurt, and Jen Jordan. With a few minutes we have left, I want to turn to the state legislature. We're more than halfway through the 40-day session, but it feels like the work has only just begun. Senator Jordan, as the former lawmaker on the panel, I want to start with you because, as I mentioned, we're, we're more than 20 days in through this legislative session. What's your impressions from the outside looking in now, and is it is it— Interesting to watch maybe the procrastination, for lack of a better word, on some of the major issues that have yet to kind of get final passage through both chambers. 
You know, I'm surprised and not. I mean, because we have a whole new leadership team um, at the state legislative level, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's going on um, behind the scenes with respect to building relationships, right? Um, Trying to figure out where the hierarchy is, who you can trust, who you can't, because there were also a lot of freshmen, new freshmen there this year um, in the Senate and in the House, and due in large part to to kind of the, the line drawing process. So I'm not surprised in some ways, but then I am surprised and others because a lot of the leadership, at least in the Senate, um, are are folks who have shown to be more to the far right and who um, have really championed some pretty extreme legislation in the past. So if it hasn't come yet, believe me, it, it will come because a lot of those people in the Senate are now chairman and they actually have the power to move some of this legislation. You know, uh, Emma, we were talking before the show about what an interesting session it is with dozens of new lawmakers, a whole new leadership regime with a new speaker, a new lieutenant governor. So Senator Jordan's right. There's a lot of kind of uh, uh, feeling around trying to get a good handle on things going on at the state capitol. Yeah, and it's you have to ask like 12 people to get to figure out exactly what's going on as a result. Whereas, you know, when with Speaker Ralston, for example, you could sort of ask him and then you would know. But it's as everyone feels each other out it's it's more complex and i mean we see it for example in the buckhead cityhood issue which last year was pretty clear okay we're done with that leadership has decided they don't want to do that but this year getting a second hearing today and um while the mayor has said he thinks based on his conversations that nobody is going to let this through um we don't know for sure what will happen with with this bill at this moment and so with each issue, the the map of of power, uh, you know, you have to check in with it and make sure. Okay, wait, do we know how everyone feels about this issue? Because we used to, but now we don't. Yeah, Leo, it seems like Buckhead is one of the many uncertainties out there. Uh, there's a, sort of been a return to some cultural wars legislation that leaders had promised to kind of keep at arm's length. This year, and of course, there's some major issues that are just getting off the ground, like the mental health bill that was announced this week. You know, they say you're not going to get money out of sports. You're not going to get culture wars out of politics anytime soon now. And I think this is somewhat of a good timeout period. I mean, I'm actually enjoying the fact that it's a little easier right now to talk to legislators and leaders about what are the core sort of deliverables to Georgians. And I think the incumbency of Governor Kemp is sort of, you know, it is it is the imprimatur of, of all things right now for conservatives and Republicans. His, his platform was so strongly put out there about what he delivered that I think he is the leader of the party in Georgia and Speaker Burns is sort of, you know, sort of feeling his way. And this is a great opportunity for committee work, I think. Senator Jordan? Well, and... Yeah, look, what we need to remember, too, is we do have um, a second term governor, right? So also what's at play here, especially now we've got a new speaker, new lieutenant governor, new pro tem. I mean, everybody's new, right? The leadership is new. And what they're also doing is also eyeing each other in terms of who's going to go for the brass ring next. And so for Republicans, it really is not only what's happening in the General Assembly and down at the Capitol, but they're already thinking two, four, six, eight eight years out and seeing who the real players are or who who's who's next in line um, when Kemp actually uh, leaves the governor's mansion. Yeah, Senator, I want to stay with you on that because 2026 is a 
a far way away, but it's also not that far. Was this part of, I mean, this, frankly, was this part of your discussions when you were thinking about legislation as you thought about maybe running for higher office 2019, 2020, 2021? No, because I never had an intention to run for higher office. <laughs> I mean, you know, we, we're all kind of pushed in different ways for different reasons. Um, but I think that a lot of the folks in power now, especially, like I said, at that leadership level right below the governor, um, there is no doubt that you could you could put up a board and put the players um, and they're all eyeing each other and seeing each other as competition. Um, so there's going to be a lot of internal battles um, between Republicans um, in terms of kind of a king of the hill situation where Democrats are really just going to have to sit back and kind of see how it all all plays out. Yeah. 2026, every statewide constitutional office is up for grabs. Of course, Senator Ossoff will be on the ballot, too. And we've already heard there's a lot of names out there. Um, Governor Kemp is term limited, but he could run against John Ossoff. We have Burt Jones, the lieutenant governor. We have the attorney general, Chris Carr. We've got insurance commissioner, John King. And I wouldn't count out ag commissioner Tyler Harper either. So there's a lot of names in the mix. Tia, we have heard, though, from the leaders, right? Governor Kemp, his speech was focused on what unites us, not what divides us. Workforce development, um, you know, infrastructure improvements, education, public safety. We heard from House Speaker John Burns, even from Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones, talking about those things to those priorities, workforce development, infrastructure. They weren't talking about new restrictions on abortion, new expansions on guns. But now we're starting to see from the leadership and from rank-and-file members of the two chambers, they are pushing transgender legislation. They are pushing um, more education legislation that is very controversial. Um, there is a revival of the religious liberty measure that we've talked about on the show for the last decade. So, Tia, I mean, what do you think is driving that? Well, I think what's driving it is their dual um, sensibilities. Because on one point, if they're thinking about their next stop. They're also thinking about winning a Republican primary. And right now, these quote unquote culture wars are the red meat for conservative voters. It's not even about the issues. It's about the emotion tied to the issues, which drums up support among your base that you'll need to cultivate in order to win a primary, which is why we're seeing some of these culture war bills come up. And it's gonna be hard for Republicans to vote no because they don't want it to come back to bite them. But the reason why the Brian Kemp's and those leaders aren't saying it on these big platforms is their other sensibility is Georgia is a purple state right now and they wanna be able to win a general election. And Brian Kemp knows, yes, he's far right, he's hard right, but we know that wasn't his message and that's what helped him win re-election. And he's trying to continue to position himself as someone who's not too MAGA, like conservative in values, but not conservative in approach. He's really shown how to walk that line and play to both sides. Um, so it's almost like, look at what they say, but also look at what they do. Leo, you're nodding in agreement. Yeah, uh, Governor Kemp is at the helm of, of this ship now. And, uh, you know, that there's no doubt about that. So I think it is important to focus on the other people who are trying to grab a place at the stern of this boat. Um, and, and you mentioned Burt Jones, the lieutenant governor. And you look at sort of some of the infrastructure type things that they're doing to position themselves better. He just opened up a new field. He brought back the whole field officers, staff, 
um, for, for the state of Georgia, where listening to constituents and having more localized constituent services, uh, and I think he's got T.J. Hudson, for instance, leading that for him, a former Secretary of State candidate. So uh, that's the kind of stuff that's going to build not only polling and data knowledge for a candidate who wants to make a move, but also increase their statewide name recognition. Emma? I think at the same time, it's just worth noting that, you know, Kemp and other statewide Republicans are riding high after eight, nine point victories. And so um, while 2026 is there and everyone is thinking about it in some form, the immediate pressure to appeal to a Republican primary is not quite so uh, vociferous or, or dramatic as it has been as of late. Um, and so while we've seen some bills, anti-transgender bills in particular, that have popped up that would fall in that category, Buckhead Cityhood, um, perhaps it, it's not been it's not been quite so um, busy in that department, and that's why they they won pretty handily. They have their majority pretty handily, and so that pressure is off um, in the near term, at least. Yeah, Senator. I mean, the last Atlanta Journal Constitution poll just a few weeks ago showed Governor Kemp's approval ratings above 60%. Internal polls showed around there as well. I've talked to Democrats who say that really puts them in a bind because how do they you know, go out there and oppose his budget? How, how do they go out there and oppose some of his priorities? Senator, you know, as, as, as the Democrat on the panel, uh, what's it like to be in the minority when you're going up against uh, you know, a political force like Governor Kemp? Look, it's always hard when you have an incumbent governor who knows how to use the power of the governor, right? That's that's it. When a governor doesn't know how to use the power, that's awesome because they don't get it. But in Georgia, we have a very powerful governor system, and it's specifically with respect to the budget. And that is how, you know, a governor gets not only Republicans in line, but Democrats in line, um, because at the end of the day, we are elected to serve the people that we represent. And if that budget contains stuff that helps those people, it's very hard just to say, kind of, let's throw the baby out with the, the bathwater kind of situation. So I think it really is about messaging and, and keeping on, you know, in terms of what's really going on. But I think the reason we're seeing higher poll numbers for Kemp right now, um, quite frankly, is because he's not doing a lot of the super controversial stuff. Um, when and if he starts doing that again, I think we should revisit that issue. Gotcha. And before we go, Emma, I'd like you to quickly tell me what you're most looking for what you're most closely watching the last couple of weeks of the state legislature? Hmm. Um, you know, I'm really fascinated by the runoff reform debate because that's one that's sort of scattershot across par parties and chambers. And it's not clear where everyone feels a uh, majority leader in the Senate. Steve Gooch yesterday said, I'm not really such a fan of changing it, but we know secretary of state Raffensperger says we need to change it. And because there's no clear political calculus, it's unclear to me how this is going to shake out. Well, we're going to be watching that very closely. That's all the time we have for Political Rewind today. I'd like to thank our guests, Leo Smith, Jen Jordan, Emma Hurt, and my colleague at the AJC, Tia Mitchell, our Washington correspondent. I'd also like to thank producers Natalie Mendenhall, Chase McGee, and engineer Jake Cook. I'm Greg Bluestein. Thanks for joining us today, and come back tomorrow for a new episode of Political Rewind. <laughs>